0: Good morning ladies Um, I have been asked to give sort of an intro at the beginning of every class just so there's sort of uh, people know where I'm going so today very very briefly we're going to be discussing sacrifices Um, we talked last week if you remember the idea that the temple or the Mishkan itself can be seen as a microcosm of the universe to a degree we said that there are different There are different areas. One is for the humans or the mortals, and one is reserved for the god. And so we're going to be talking today about the idea um, why, despite the fact that we think of god in a very, very different way than we did in ancient times, it goes without saying. um, But what we want to look at today is the institution, really, of the temple itself, and more specifically, korbanot, and how they worked, right? How they functioned. We talk about korbanot. And one of the things we're going to talk about in the next class is how I think on some level, even if we don't admit it, we imagine that we are more sophisticated and more um, refined and we would never do something so barbaric. And we sort of look at it as, oh, those poor Jews that they were still pagan in mindset and they needed the note. but we, we've evolved. We're going to talk about that evolutionist uh, approach next week and whether or not it's valid. There are certainly uh, many that would argue that it is. We're going to look at what the, what the sort of... Dangers are when we think in such black and white terms. But in order to even have that discussion, we need to talk first about how Corbondo worked, what they were, why they worked the way they were, and what I think we're going to do today, what I hope I'll be able to do today, is give a relatively broad overview, um, but really redefine how we conceive of sacrifices altogether. So if we're going to start, oh, I did take a sheet. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so what, if I asked you, korbanot, free associate, what is the one word that you think of when I say korbanot? Animals. Animals, blood.
1: But they're not all korbanot, they're gifts to God, because they could also be, you know, the korbanot the, the that, that would bring. Yeah, but that was only if you couldn't
0: afford an animal, right? In an <laughs> ideal sense, you should be bringing an animal. If you can't, you could bring a bird, or you could bring a grain offering, but the ideal korban is an animal. There's no argument, right? What else? Uh, oh, the poor animal, we have so many animal Right. By the way, I'm a vegetarian, just to clarify, because gonna, I'm going to sound like <laughs> I'm very, very pro-spilling blood of animals, and I'm not necessarily, but um, we do have to just talk conceptually what's going on. So we know, and we've been talking a lot about this since the beginning of the semester, how anthropologists really talk about the way in which, if any culture wants to pass down values, right, not just memory. We talk about memory, for example, when we're going to get to the rituals of the Chagim. But if you want to pass them values, if we want to communicate, to the community in which we live, to the next generation. What the values of the community are, we do so through ritual, right? We ensconce our values and the lessons and the morals in ritual, and that's how we articulate physically the ideas that we want to communicate. There's a difference between saying, right, sitting a kid down and saying, I want to tell you a story, thousands of years ago, our God took us out of Egypt, or having the Pesach Seder, and that is a means by which the child internalizes that idea so we don't have to talk too much about ritual although i found a great quote that i did want to share with you um, by jacob milgram if anyone does any studying of Sefer Bayekra at all um, jacob milgram has to be one of your go-to scholars ritual is the poetry of religions that leads us to a moment of transcendence when a ritual fails because it either lacks content or is misleading it loses its efficacy and its purpose A ritual must signify something beyond itself whose attainment enhances the meaning and value of life. Okay, I I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better sentence that encapsulates really everything we're talking about. So Sefer Shemot ends. Hashem tells Bnei Yisrael to build, or he tells Moshe, and Moshe passes on to Am Yisrael to build a mishkad, And Vayikra starts, the very beginning of Vayikra, really begins with the uh, rules of the sacrifices. So what you have on your sheets here, because we're really spending just two classes on incidents or things that appear in Vayikra, that surface in Vayikra, but what I wanted to do, what I thought might be helpful, is to see Vayikra sort of from the broad structural, right, sort of the bird's eye view, and we're gonna see at the end of class why the structure of Vayikra is so important. Okay, so if you look at your sheets, one of the things you'll notice, and you have this in the big box on the right after Milgram's quote, what you'll notice is that the outer prakim, or excuse me, the outer sections, the first and the last section, parallel each other. So the entire Sefer Vayikra is flanked by ritual, which doesn't surprise us, because what we're talking about is the way in which ritual gives shape to what God is trying to communicate or to what we are trying to communicate. So the outer sections are ritual. Chapters 1 to 7 are specifically the rituals of sacrifice how we thank god how we apologize to god and we're going to get into a few more details and the last closing section are the rituals associated with the festivals right with the chagim and so it's the rituals of remembering the bringing of the bikurim the bringing of korban pesach etc okay now bracketing or right inside the ritual brackets we have the priesthood, and that makes sense. And we're going to talk about this because, really, the priesthood is what? What is the institution of the kohen? The one carries out? Correct. They're the conduit between the people and Hashem, right? And it's interesting. One of the things we're going to keep in mind: um, there are very specific rituals about the kohanim, who they're allowed to marry. They can't. They themselves cannot have a moon, right? We're going to. But we have to remember, it's not just that the Kohanim represented us to Hashem, they also represented Hashem to us. And so the specific rules regarding the Kohain and what makes a Kohain eligible for the task is something that we have to remember, it goes in both directions. They represent us to God and God to us. And so the, the qualifications that we have, the Kohanim, the Kohanim are ordained in those second chapters, and then in the second to last section are the qualifications for the Kihuna. Okay? Moving further in, and again, this comes as no surprise, are the laws of purity. Okay, and why does that come as no surprise? That those bracket, the and what's at the center of the sefer? Because purity is a prerequisite for any of the avodah in the mishkan. Okay, and then we're, what we're going to see in a moment is that there's a difference between the first section, which speaks of ritual purity, and the second one, which speaks of moral purity. And then at the epicenter of the book, which we're only going to understand in an hour and 13 minutes from now, is Yom Kippur. Okay, Yom Kippur is the center. It doesn't. It, it's not listed with the chagim. And it's not listed with the other sacrifice, for example, of Korban Chata. It's at the epicenter of the books. book. The highlight of everything is the Yom Kippur service in Prakim Zion and Zain. And so what we're going to look at today is why that is and how that structure sort of enables us to make sense of everything we're talking about. I'm putting a name on the board because most of what we're going to be doing today is really based on his um, research. He has a number of books and many, many articles. Uh, a man by the name of Jonathan Clowens. But I do want to clarify that he builds, meaning everything that he has written in the last number of years, he is building on, and he speaks about this in the intro chapters, and really any time he's building on the work of a previous scholar, for example, and again, names that you might, may or may not recognize, Jacob Milgram, who we just saw, Tikva Frymer Murkensky, Jacob Wright, meaning scholars who have been working on Mary Douglas, some of you may know her name, have been working on the concept of purity and impurity for years and he's sort of building on it and I find his understanding of notes to be really, really compelling and also very, uh, sort of making sense of ideas that we did not understand and I'm just gonna put this out there, maybe we'll deal with it a second, a separate time, because chazal, later on in history, begin to conflate the categories of ritual and moral impurity for a whole variety of reasons. Number one, to sort of prevent intermarriage, okay? I'm putting that on the side because I know it's an unfair tangent to a upon, but meaning the, the understanding that we're gonna be addressing today is more based in the pshat than the later understandings of impurity. And for those of you who could jog your memory who were in my Ezra Nechemia class, I think like five or six years ago, We talked about why in Ezra's day he started to talk about impurities within sort of one rubric instead of distinction. Okay, so if we can look at, now there are two organizing principles that we're going to be talking about today that are really at the heart of sacrifices. One, what is this fancy word that the rug used to love quoting in his works? (laughs) To imitate, correct, right? To imitate God. We like to be like god the things that we do we are meant to be imitating god and the second element that's involved in the korbanot, notes and we're going to see is to attract and to maintain god's presence okay That these are two elements are really the cornerstones of what korbanot notes are like but in order to understand what that is we need to go all the way back to the beginning now I mentioned that when we talk about Tum'a, okay, and anyone who has learned Mishnah and Gemara, and really the way that we think of Tum'a today, we imagine there's one type of tumah. So if I say Tum'a, what do you say? Tum'at meit. What? Tum'at meit. Tum'at, nidah. tumat nidah. Throw out others. We think of things that make us impure, that we are not eligible to do pure things. One of the things that we sort of forget to, to read is that, in fact, the Torah presents two different categories of impurity. Okay? So look at your sheets here. We're going to start with ritual impurity. Okay? Ritual impurity, and I'm going to read you a couple of sukim from inside Vayikra. Some of you may remember. I think I did this in one of my other classes a few years, ago. But I don't remember. So if I did, just bear with me. Vayikra, parakid, Aleph. Okay? Vayidabera, shemel, moshel, el Elaron, Mor alehem Zabru, el shal, Mor. So Asher ma Asher Al Kol Mafresah is describing all the types of animals that you are allowed to eat, and then he mentions the types that you're not allowed to eat. And jump down to Pasuk K, he says, Ve'Etas Shafan Kima Rahu Lo Right? If they only have either split hooves or chew their cud, or the reverse, but don't have all the qualifications of a kosher animal, Tamei Hu Lachen. They are. Right. Impure. Good. Next one. I'm more. Adam ki if you have any sort of skin disease, what is what happens? Oh, and then of course the kohen will go through. He's going to look at it, he's going to inspect it, and go to pasuk or If it is in fact sarat. And it jumps there. Uh, and it's giving all the qualifications. How do we know the distinctions, right? How do you know it's not just psoriasis? But if it is, what happens to him? He is isolated. Right. This is a very timely topic. He is isolated on a, on a cruise ship for seven days. Right. Next one. It's going to list and list and list all these different types of ritual impurity. Anytime someone comes in contact with the dead, anytime someone has some sort of bodily fluid, or in particular, we're going to see why this is important, a genital fluid, gives birth, comes near dead, comes near uh, creepy, right, the creepy crawlers are tamay, they become tamay. That is ritual impurity. And that's what most of us think of when we free associate and think of impurity. Okay? There's a whole separate category of impurity that we don't focus on as much that is equally, if not more, important. I don't know, equally important. Okay, go to the moral impurity category. By Zaber Shem El Moshe, Le Mor. Zaber, the Neyser, the Amartalehem, Ani Hashemelokechem. Kima se erit nitraimashir ye shav temba, lo tasu. Ukima se erit kina masher nimi viatrem shama, lo tasu. The Hukotehem Lotelech Hashem is now going to list all of those Toevot. What's in a Toeva? No. An abominable action or behavior, right? To-a-va, um Chanath is also one of the Shorashim that we see a lot. Do what I tell you, not what all of those other people did. Okay? And then it goes through and it lists all of the, in this case, Arayot. But if we were to read through and really do a proper study of moral impurity, it involves three main Averot, if you had to guess. Gilor Averot, Shbichut Damim, murder, and Abu Dazara. Okay, why Chazal called the three cardinal sins, but we never actually talk about it in the context of tumah. Jump down to Perak right underneath it. Going to a magician or to a sorcerer or a witch is another way to absorb or to to uh, engender this moral impurity. Dump down to the flip over, excuse me. And the next two psukim are the most important. Right? It says. Ah, oh, this is after the list of all of the sexual prohibitions. Al u Do not become impure through these immoral behaviors. Why? Ki hagoyim asher ni Because the people that were living in this land, the Moshe is speaking in the desert. So the people that were living in this land before you, they engaged in all these types of behaviors. And what was the result? Va titma va'ifkod avona aleha. The land. What happens to the land? Well, first it absorbs the impurity, and so what is the result? So it spits you out. Okay, and if you go down to the next one, just one, one last example. The blood is going to soil the the earth in such a way right and again we remember this all we already learned this where did we learn that the land absorbs the blood and there's an implicit warning it goes without saying if the lamb spit them out for doing these things then you better you better watch it okay so if we have ritual impurity and moral impurity Ritual impurity stands in opposition to what? To tahara. Okay? If I am ritually impure, okay. you know what, here, look at your sheets here, I actually wrote it out for you on a nice, pretty chart. Two different impurity types. Ritual impurity, the source is natural processes and substances such as birth, death, bodily flow, certain animal carcasses, human carcasses. Now, by the way, ritual impurity, is it sinful? No. It's almost, I'm not saying almost, it is unavoidable over the course of a human life to not become ritually impure at some time, and, go further, some mitzvot require that I become ritually impure. It is my obligation to tend to a dead body and make sure it's buried properly that will render me impure. There is nothing sinful about ritual impurity except what? Except if you are impure and you venture into the place that is tahor. If you are Tamei, you cannot cross into a place that is Tahor. You cannot show up at the Beit HaMikdash if you are ritually impure, okay? Now, the effect is the temporary contagion, right? The person becomes temporarily contagious. How do you get rid of ritual impurity? So there's different rituals that you can do. You can go to the mikvah, you can wait a certain amount of time, you can do the para aduma if you're Tamei Lamei. There's all different ways that you can purify yourself from ritual impurity. Okay. Now, moral impurity stands in opposition to what? It's not tahara. If a woman is suspected of being an isha sota, so she's morally impure, there's no better case of a morally impure, where do we bring her? Mm-hmm. To the Beit HaMikdash. Okay. Moral impurity does not stand in opposition to tahara. What does it stand in opposition to?
2: Um
0: Clothes. That's what we have to do to render us pure again. Oh Kedushah. Someone remind me to keep closing this as I'm talking. Kedushah. Kedoshim to you. You need to be holy. You need to behave differently than the way all these other people are behaving because ki kadosh ani Hashem, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And so moral impurity stands in opposition to Kedushah. Okay? Now, how do you... Now, is moral impurity catchy? Okay. Not from person to person, yeah. but what catches moral impurity? Mm-hmm. Two things. Society? Be more specific. You're talking I in sort so. of very right metaphorical terms. Mm-hmm. Impurity is real in the Torah. Okay. Not moral Oh, yes, sorry. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So ah, okay, excellent. Sorry. More, I was speaking more. The two mm-hmm. things that absorb moral impurity, that are affected by moral impurity... Is the mikdash with all of the kelim inside, and the land. the land? Okay. If those places now, why is it a problem if they become morally impure? Can't serve well, we can't serve Hashem. Why? Because Hashem, right? The Asuli Mikdash for Shachanti are number one. Concern is creating a space where God will dwell. God is not going to dwell in a mikdash that is full of moral impurity, and the land will not tolerate people that make it impure, and so it will spit us out. Okay? Now, all of that is the background to how we need to understand what the sacrificial process is. Okay? Ah, sorry, very important. How do you, if I could dunk in a mikvah and get rid of my ritual impurity, how do I get rid of my moral impurity? Shuva. Shuva, kapara, as we're going to see, which is different than Shuva, or. Huh? That's one of the forms of kapara, excellent. Or, unfortunately, sometimes it gets to this death? point, punishment. Well, death, not specific punishment, right? In this case, exile. Okay, The land kicks us out when it just becomes oversaturated. Okay? Now, all of that being said. Ritual purification is the pre is what you need to do in order to do any of the avodah in the Beit Hamikdash. The Kohain needs to be pure. The person bringing the sacrifice needs to be pure. Even to just be in the community of people, for example, in the desert, you need to be pure. You need to get out of the the machaneh if you're not pure. Okay. So what is ritual impurity? Think to, about all the different examples. What is the um, Common denominator, you might say, between all of the different types of things that render us ritually impure. What? And I'm skipping non kosher animals because we're going to get to that.
1: It's, it's something natural, in a sense. It okay, it's natural. Nida natural. Um, um, is natural, childbirth is natural. Okay. It's part of life.
0: And they're also, okay, part of life, I'll use a different that, word. That, that's part what
1: life. I meant by natural.
0: Okay. Huh? <coughs> who said something? Okay, transition. There's something specific. Death. Yeah. Death. Right? A a woman who menstruates, there's a there was a potential yeah. for life. And that's no longer there. And so it's associated with the death of that potential life, right? The same goes for a male emission. The same goes for the skin diseases. We know when Moshe and when Aaron were talking about Miriam Sarat, right, they refer to it as almost death, right? Because the, the flaking of the skin is reminiscent of the decay of the body. So everything, all of the tumot that we associate, a dead body, is associated with death. Okay? But someone ask a question on that. Because there's an element missing. Death doesn't account for everything. If a woman menstruates, so she's to, she's coming,
2: yeah?
0: Um, so you're there. So meaning be even more specific, yeah? Well there, I mean, to put a later that's interesting. I love recursion. Um, Okay, so I think there's definitely, I, but I think we're missing something. I'll give you an example. Okay, if a woman menstruates, so she's tame. Let's say I'm standing next to someone who's bleeding. Okay, bleeding from anywhere else in their body, and then they subsequently die, or but I leave before that happens. Okay, so I'm with a living body that's bre- that's bleeding, that's literally causing. That does not render me tame. That makes no sense if we're saying death is the only qualifier.
2: what's so the
0: state when death is set in? Um, no, ah, interesting, interesting. But you can argue there's something else as well. Touch. Hmm? Touch? Close, I'm sorry to put this word up here on board, but death and sex. Why?
1: Ah, oh, they're basically because sex is for reproduction and death is an end of a person. What is the beginning of the person?
0: Creation of a person and the elimination of a person. Okay, excellent. Go back though to the first thing we're trying to do. By being ritually impure, or excuse me, by, by maintaining ritual purity, <coughs> the first step to being able to commune with God, I need to be as much like God as I can. Right Now, of course I can't maintain that every day of my life. But if I'm going to go to the Beit HaMikdash, or think about the Shlosha HaGemai HaGbalah, the three days leading up to Har Sinai, Moshe said, don't go, right? You cannot be with your spouse. You need to be, pure. you're preparing to encounter the divine. You are going to be as divine as a human being can be. And so you are going to avoid those two things that in the monotheistic religion we believe God is not. Right? If you remember the beginning, we said, what's in Gan Eden? Why could we not go into Gan Eden anymore? Because that is, it has the potential for immortality. We are mortal, we cannot be, right? Human beings die, and so we're gonna abstain from having anything to do with death. And what is perhaps one of the most important revolutions of the monotheistic faith? That God is Hashem Elokeinu Hashem. Hashem does not have a consort. In all other, right, in pagan religions, there was always a god and a goddess, and they worked together, and they had children that were also gods. God is one. God does not have a consort, okay? God is the only God. And so the two things we are going to avoid are those things that are so quintessentially human, but that stands in opposition to what we believe God is. And so when we're preparing for that encounter, we abstain from those, even though it's not, right, even though it's a super, it's a... Um, it's a temporary way of being. Those are the two things we abstain from. Okay. Now, and by the way, look in the beginning, right? Just go to Vayikra, for example, Parak Yud Tet, Leviticus 19. Right? This is the starting point for anything ritual. Hashem says, Parak Yud Tet, Pasuk Bet, verse two, or start from the beginning, Shem Daber El Koladat Bnei Yisrael Aleihem. Kdoshin tihiyu, ki kadosha Okay, but in order to get to a place of kedusha, the first thing we need to do is mimic God in our behaviors. Okay, now you still should be asking a really important question. If these are the two things that are most ungodly, or if we're trying to understand God, and we understand that God is distinct from human beings, and what makes God God is that He is not. Right, a part of these two realms, ask a really important question. We avoid death and sex. Going to the Mikdash on any given day. So you're killing kill You're killing animals! That's what it is. The mikdash is filled with <laughs> dead animals. Uh,
1: but but it wasn't the, the animals, the flesh wasn't thrown out. They the signs of where was the Mishkan in Shiloh was based on the pottery shards and, and even bones that were found surrounding a certain area and that was it. This these were major cookouts. And people ate yeah, but and people
0: tasted that's, that's waste.
1: So it's a matter of saying either it's there's some some moral problem in, in eating and, and, and eating animals which is allowed and even in, 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 by God, but but to say that the sacrifices were all like wasting animals. No, 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 I don't know anything about but waste. But I think that people have to sort of clean their heads. Yes, we're
0: gonna get to that next week, or next Sorry. class, there's maybe, no class next maybe week. Maybe
1: living in Shiloh, because this is, you know, part of our We are gonna,
0: we're gonna get to that next week, how we have to sort of recalibrate how we think about sacrifices, they're not just, but, okay, you're still killing animals in the Beit HaMikdash, so this is not foolproof. So the question is, Right? What is we as humans need to abstain from anything not Godlike? So then the question is what are the sacrifices? What are they doing? Where why, why this sort it's of paradox at the heart? Yeah.
3: I don't understand the question. It's very godlike to kill animals. Ah, kill
0: okay, okay. okay it so really let's okay, so let's focus on right? what the killing of the animals was? what it mm-hmm. looked like and why right? so we were right. You're saying mm-hmm. ritualistic, but Ritual has to mean something, right? I think we've come to a place where we're just, okay, saying, yeah, it was just ritual. That's what they did in those. Why was it meaningful? What If these are the two cornerstones of Avodah in the Mikdash, how did we get there through abstaining from this and then bringing sacrifice, okay? So let's see. Okay. Actually, that's not a perfect stick of arrows. We're going to get back to that in a second. Okay, so let's talk first about what types of animals are brought in the Mikdash. Okay, and I will say that if you picture, okay, the, there's a phrase now that has become associated with the Shoah, so it's a very very charged term. But when Yirmiyahu Anavis spoke about katzon latevach, okay, why did he use that phrase? Why do we say, like sheep to the slaughter, which is such, again, it, it brings up so many images in our minds. So. Lines and lines and crowds of people. Okay, people certainly it's happening. the numbers, but it's also what is why does he not say like a wolf to the slaughter? What is the difference between a sheep and a wolf? Oh, okay domesticated animals, their deaths for the most part, and again don't call on me and I promise you I don't eat animal, but their death is not violent. Because they are domesticated. What does it mean to domesticate? And I'm going to be sp- speaking about animals, but we know that the same holds true in the agricultural world, right? What do human beings have the ability to do to animals and to vegetation? To make them dependent on us. Okay, so dependent is, is hold that but for a second. A domesticated sure. Yeah, yeah, but, for sure. But there's other. But before that, before that, what else? Sure. Sure. Domestication is basically what? Exactly. To control training. Before that, before even more broadly, not how do we do it, domestication, I am basically affecting what? Antropriation,
3: food supply. And
0: even more broadly, their genetic makeup, right? If you take a toy poodle and you compare it to a wolf, or you take a, any dog that is domesticated, because over thousands of years, human beings have been, right, and it ties into survival of the fit, all the other things that genetic, right, sort of the... the um, I would say the way in which genetics, right, genotype and phenotype manifest is all also about, right, there's, there's nature and then there's also nurture. And so human beings, that we do the same thing to plants. We are essentially affecting, acting on and affecting the genetic makeup of the animals that we have domesticated over hundreds of thousands of years, okay? Now, that being said, why is that important? Why is it important? that we're bringing domesticated, or why is why is it that we only bring domesticated animals? How does our experience of bringing a domesticated animal to the Mikdash change, or how does it sort of enable us to understand, to a better degree, what God is? In a sense, we are God to these animals. We've controlled them, and now we're bringing okay. them to God. Okay, excellent. So let's talk about what we do with these animals. Let's start. How is an animal, how do you domesticate
1: a circle there, we no, no, no! Because
0: human beings started domesticating animals hundreds of thousands of years before Matat Torah, right? We have like, to. But the ones that
1: were brought
0: for sacrifice. <laughs> I'm saying, why is it specifically the calmer, more domesticated animals that are brought for sacrifice, as opposed to wild? I can't go out and catch a deer and bring it in, right? Why is that? Why is it specifically cat, cattle, and sheep and birds, birds, birds also? Some birds. Um, birds, No, some are ducks, pigeons. Also, you would say no. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we have easy
3: access to
2: them.
0: They're part of
3: our parnassa. Okay. And they're part of our. um, uh,
0: Okay. Okay, so be, but before even our dependent, think about what it is to domesticate it. What is the process from beginning to end of me being able to walk into the Beit HaMikdash on Tuesday and bring my korban toe down? Okay, what leads up to that? We have to pen the animals up, right? We are completely in charge of the animals. We separate the herds, okay? We ration their feeding. We sometimes have to kill selectively if, for example, there's not enough food for the, for the stronger ones to survive. What else? What else do we do? With we what we feed them, them.
1: We, we invest in them. In a
0: way. We invest in them. We're careful with what we feed them. I can't bring an animal with a moon. So what am I going to do? What am I going to be Protect. very careful of? Right. Protect. Protecting. I'm going to be checking if there's a stronger or purer animal. Pure. Mm-hmm. I'm going to breed them with other healthy, strong animals, and the weaker ones are going to eventually, right, I'm going to weed out. I also can't bring an animal and their child, on a mother and its child on the same day as a sacrifice. So what am I going to keep very careful watch of? Relations. Familial relations, the equivalent, right, now I'm making the jump here, right, but of arayot within the animal family as well. You're going to be watching very, very, very carefully, okay? Now, we said it right, Ruchhi said it already. Go to Tehillim Perek Chavkimal and we all know this, uh, 23, right? And there are so many examples of this metaphor throughout Tanakh, but the beginning starts, the beginning of the Mizmor, Mizmor li David, Hashem ro'i lo Bin odesha yarbitzeni, alneimnu mm-hmm. fotina haleni. If you go to Tihilim. Uh, Pei for example, 95. Uh, pay, sorry, excuse me, pay Hei, 95. Uh, sorry, sorry. Did I give you the right one? No, Tsadi Kei, excuse me. Tsadi Kei, okay. Mm-hmm. okay it says right we're giving praise to hashem lekhun ranan allah hashem na real its orish enu nikad ma panav ditoda b'smi ki el gadol hashemu melach gadol al kol lohim it's giving all those things and now it's going to list all the things that Hashem has done for us, right? Asher domech or for the world more broadly. Asher bi'adomekirei aretz vitoa fotarim lo, right? His hands—they're sort of—they're the, the ones that are as deep as the earth and as tall as the peaks of the mountains. Asher lo hayam vihuasahu, he made both the lands and the waters. Pasuk above, ba'u nishtachav nivrachal lifnei Hashem oseinu. Hashem is the one that created us, but now look at what we're calling Hashem. Kihu hu elokeinu vaAnachnu. what are we? Am um, marito v'tson hayom tishmau. And again, we can go through all of Tanakh. Ishayahu, the famous parakel Ishayahu that the Christians love to quote. We are, right, we are the God's sheep or God is our shepherd, et cetera, et cetera. Why is Hashem our shepherd? Why is that metaphor so perfectly fitting? And only when we think about what's involved in bringing a domesticated animal to the temple do we actually fully appreciate that metaphor. Protects us. Huh? Protects us, watches over us, maintains all of those things that we are responsible for. Um, Okay, there's something else, by the way. Um, All right, we'll get back to that in a second. There's other, right? Think about the other acts involved in bringing a korban. What else does Hashem have to do? Or what do we do for the korban? We have to select. Right? We don't bring every animal we have to the Beit Dash. We select an animal and we bring it because we believe this is the animal that's right for the korban. We have to, the animal is slaughtered, right? But what happens after the animal is slaughtered? You don't just bring it. What, is, what are we then responsible or the co, we along with the cohaine? You have to cut it, you don't just, you have to cut out the fat for this one and cut out this piece for this one. What is another phrase we use? Collectively, correct, right? There's a very intricate process. What's another phrase we use for Hashem? Hashem is, how do we talk about Hashem as investigating the innards of people? Hashem is bochen klayot vale. Okay, just like we need, are responsible for that animal that we've brought, that we've been watching over for months, that we've been picking the right foods for them, then we open them up and we are bochen klayot vale. And so part of the ritual that's lost on us is that way in which the person who was bringing the korban felt so much like a god to the animal because there he was doing all those things, but what also lies in the sacrificer's hand? The life and death of the animal, okay? Nothing makes a person feel more like a deity than essentially uh, holding life and death in their hands. Okay. By the way, one other thing that's important, and we're going to see in a moment why it's important. How do you say, what's the word, I really got to get a bigger whiteboard. What do we say, how do you uh, say in Hebrew? Again, this is a, a phrase that's lost on us because we forget the Hebrew, original Hebrew. If I want to eat something, if I'm going to eat my korban, what's the word I use in Hebrew for eat? What? What? What's the word in Hebrew when fire consumes something? No. Same thing. No, lishrof is just a burn, but to but a burn, to consume. What?
2: Burn. Correct.
0: Okay. So even the act when God's fire comes down and consumes is still the same. Again, it's lost on us because the because language, because translation. Often we lose things. But there's still that same experience. God will consume that which we offered up. We will eat it. And so there's this experience of this imitation of God. Okay? Now, what's the next question we need to ask? Why do we need to be? Hmm?
3: What, what is our need?
0: What's our need for what? The process is in the, in
3: the process
0: of the Okay, excellent. Is, meaning it must be... Right? A means to an end. Right? The ritual, we go through the Pesach Seder because it enables us, right, the It's the means by which we go through the process of telling the story. So the question is, right, what you're asking, even though you haven't, right, is, why do we care to imitate God? Why do we refrain from death and sex and take these animals and interact with them like they are people and feel like a deity vis-a-vis them? It goes back to a pasuk we read a few minutes ago. Not just about acting like a god, so we feel like a deity. Our God tells us something specific. Doshim <inaudible> tihir, <inaudible> okay. And kedusha, I really gotta get this word because kedusha is not about ritual impurity. Kedusha is moral. moral impurity. So phase two is about what? What's phase two? Phase one is acting like God and attracting His presence. Okay. How do we attract God's presence? By bringing? How do we know offering attracts God's presence? You know that it does. How do we know that? Okay, so but even tell the... Correct, you're correct, right? But give me examples. How do we know... I'll, I'll ask an even more basic question. We can't see Hashem, so how do we know if we've successfully attracted God's presence? Right. I want to connect Because a fire comes and consumes. Give me examples of that. Okay, so even before Eliyahu, go to wow. Shmot, Perakh Dalid, Exodus 24. Shmot, Exodus 24, verse 17, and it says as follows. <coughs> um Vaishko, we could start even with the with Pasuk Tedvav. We read this last week. Right, the Anan comes down, and so it's sort of obscuring the vision. We don't know what's going to be on the mountain. By the way, the cloud is often what obscures the vision. When the Kohen has to walk into the Kodesh Kodashim, he brings the Katoret first because because it needs he needs something to obscure his vision. The cloud is what's obscuring what comes next. What comes next? Umar Ei Kvod Hashem. So now go to Leviticus 9, Vayikra Perek Tet. How do we bring that fire back? How do we enable, how do we attract God's presence again? Go to Vayikra Tet, Pasuk verse 22. This is the investiture. This is the beginning of it all. Vaisa aharon et yadav el ha'am vayivarachim vayered me'asot ha'chatat v'ha'olav Hashlamim. He brings the each type of those korbanots. Vayavu Moshe v'aharon el ohel mo'ed vayitzu vayivaruchu et ha'am vayar kvod ha'shem el kol ha'am v'tetzei eish milivnei ha'shem v'tochal al ha'mizbeach Okay? So bringing a korban seems to be the most effective means by which I go, I do, and act. And what comes down, the eshochelat, and so I can bring God's presence down. Can be other examples of people that brought korbanot. Ah, so interesting, Noach, right? And there it was a re'ach mikoach, right?
2: Um, what?
0: Okay, correct, correct. Who else? (inaudible) Huh? (inaudible) Correct. Havel Hashem accepts his korban. Who else? Eshet Manoach brings the korban, if you remember, right after the Malach is there. Read that, we'll read that one because it's a great, go to Vayik, go, just so that we understand how much It was sort of a part of the consciousness that when you see a fire consume, you know that Hashem is there. That was the way you knew. Okay? Perek Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Tet, verse 19. Sorry, (laughs) Shoftim. My apologies. Shoftim Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Tet. This is after the Malach appears and he gives the message for the second time to Esh or the third time to Esh and Manoach, and Manoach himself hears. This is when she finds out that she's going to be the mother of Shimshon. So now he wants to give a sacrifice to thank God, ostensibly. And it goes on. What marvelous thing happened? Okay, so he has to ignite, he ignites the korban, right? Because Hashem is not just going to come down and consume an ordinary korban. We have to ignite it. But what happens? He lights the fire. He lights the, the wood underneath. And vayal malach Hashem Bilaha hamizbeach. The guy they had just been talking to a moment ago, all of a sudden flies up in that uh, pillar of fire. Umanoach v'yishto ro'im v'yiplu Why do they fall on their face? God is there. I'll give you one other, right? What's the most famous that we're all forgetting? What's the most famous example? If you want to prove God is here, <laughs> it's <laughs> Eliyahu Parak Yudchet in Malachim Aleph. Yeah. Chapter 18 in First Kings. This is after an extended period of Eliyahu trying to convince people that he is the true Navi and to turn back to God after they had been turning to the Nebi'e Baal. And he goes in Perak Yudchet, Pasuk, Lamir, uh, or start with uh, start with Lamidvav even, okay? It says as follows: Hashem and by the way, this is after if you remember, he allowed them to do everything to make it impossible for the fire to ignite, pour liquids on it, anything that would make it impossible if God were not involved. Today, prove it. Ki ata Elokim biYisrael vaniavdecha uvidvarcha sittiyat kol advarim ha'ileh. Anini Hashem, anini. Right, Hashem, answer me. V'yedzu ha'am hazeki ata Hashem Elokim. They need to know Hashem is the proper noun. They need to know that you, Yud kevavke, are the God and not the other gods. V'atah Hasibota et li b'machoranit. Turn their hearts around. V'tipol eish Hashem. So Hashem went all out on this one, right? We needed serious miracle for this one. It consumed everything, okay? And so, and then of course, what's the reaction? There was no doubt left because the all-consuming fire came down and consumed it all. Okay? So if I want to bring God's presence down, I bring a something that either God right now God is going to respond to. We know from Rishit was a reach we have other words also. But that is how I bring God's presence down. Okay? So I imitate God. I purify myself ritually by imitating God. I do something to bring God's presence down. But then the big question is, but, how do I keep it there? So now Hashem is here. How do I keep it? And we also still have to go back to what? We've been talking the whole time about which type of impurity? Ritual. Ritual, ritual, ritual. Purify yourself and act like God and imitate God and be ritually pure. We still need to maintain God's presence, and we still need to understand what moral impurity has to do with any of this. Okay? So now, everyone go inside to Vayikra Parag Dalit. Leviticus chapter 4. And I'm going to read... Oh, I need to erase this. I'm really sorry. I have to draw a picture. Okay. This is the Mishkan. This is the Kodesh Kodeshim. This is the Kodesh. And this whole area is the Chatzer. Okay? Now, let's talk about the Korban Chatat for a second. Korban Chatat is brought when? If someone. Korban Chatat. Chatat, Asham. there's two different types of, right? Uh, Korbanot that are brought when someone sins. Okay, so what are we purifying through the Korban Chatat? Go to Paragraph. <coughs> Chapter Four. If I accidentally, Bushet Daber Mikol If I accidentally I do something, Im Al don't, we don't have to worry right now about all the details, but there are gradations. Okay, so if a Cohen sins, there's one type of animal for him. If a, if a regular citizen sins, there's all different types of animals, and as we're going to see, different places where there's sacrifice. And what happens? In Pasadal, he puts his hand on the animal. hashem. And he then sacrifices this animal before Hashem. el. Now, if I sinned, Right before we made this whole distinction between moral and ritual purity, if you imagine, right, if I am tamay lamit, then I sprinkle the ashes of the of the, the So you would imagine if we didn't finish the sentence, and I say I sinned, so I bring a sacrifice. Where is the kohen going to sprinkle the blood? On me, right? I'm the one that messed up. But if we finish the pasuk b'shamachat yadol rosh apar b'shachat et apar lenei Hashem. The ha-kohin mashiach midam ha-par, v'havii uto el o hel Vitaval aid v'taval ha-kohin et badam, v'hiza min ha-dam sheba pahamim l'fnei ha-shem et p'nei parochet ha-kodesh. He doesn't sprinkle it on me, the sinner. He sprinkles it on v'natan ha-kohin dam What's going on here? What's being purified? The Mishkan and all its vestments. No blood is sprinkled on the person. Okay. Now, what's important and what's interesting, and we're going to get now to why Yom Kippur is at the center of the everything we talk about in VaYikra is as follows: For an, in, if I, by, if I as an individual have to, if I violate some a a set so I bring the korban right here, outside in the chutzre. Okay. What happens if the entire community accidentally violates something, or for example, a kohen violates something? Where do they bring it? inside the Kodesh, because that's already a more severe sin, right? An entire community sinning involuntarily is a whole different ballgame, okay? The question is, what happens if the entire community is not just accidentally sinning? What if as a community, we are full of sinners? What if as a community, we are all sinning, just sinning, then what? Well, the danger is what? If we're just all sinning, it's not just the Chatser and the Kodesh that's going to be affected. The Kodesh Kodeshim where Hashem dwells, we're going to lose it. We're going to lose Hashem in the Mikdash and we will be kicked off the land. And so there is one day a year where we are able as a community to repent. That's tipper, okay, so go to the epicenter of the book of Vayikra, Perek Tet Zion, chapter 16, and it says as follows, <laughs> and by the way, very important, what happened when they were in, inappropriately brought in Eish Zara? The fire, the fire consumed them, right? They were incinerated. Bayomer Hashem El Moshe, Tabera Laharon Akiha Vealya Vobichol eight El Hakodesh ni Bait La Paruhat El Pine Hakapuret Asher Al Aharon, Veloyamut, right? If you step into the into the Kodesh Kodashim on any other day, Aharon, you will be that's it, you're gonna die. Kiba non-air el hakapur because Hashem's presence is there. And we learned with Nadav and Aviyu, Hashem's presence is potent. Where else do we know that Hashem's presence is deadly? Is it, the... Harsinai don't touch it, don't go near it. You might be inclined to, stay away, because if you touch it, you're going to die. Give me another example of when we know that touching or going too close to where Hashem's presence is will automatically kill, not as punishment, just because the potent presence of God.
2: Huh? The Aron. The
0: Aron, okay? If you remember when David was having the Aron brought up to its capital city, and poor Uzzah, Right, didn't realize and he did everything right. The iron was falling off the wagons. All he did was try to make sure that the arom, imagine, right? The equivalent of someone sees a Torah falling. Of course, your instinct is gonna to be to run to catch it. He ran to catch it and Paratz Hashem the Uza, parats Uza. Okay? So there's one day a year we are told, and only one day, and only one person from the entire community that is allowed to cross that threshold and we go inside basuk gimel vizilia va harona la kodash prepar ben vakarl khatat the ilola ktonet bad kodash yil Now it's going through all of the different animal the the different uh ways he's going to dress appropriately for the day vi kriva harona par khatata shirlo vi prepare ba do va ad beto he's going to do kapara Now, by the way the word ki the shoresh kapara really comes from to purge right we think of it as chuva It's not tshuva saying Hashem, I'm so sorry. It's purging. What are we purging from the Beit Hamikdash? The impurity generated by our sins. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is also very, very important distinction because many pagan religions had their own day of purgation where they would sprinkle blood and they would go through very, very similar. Um, rituals. They would tie a little string to the foot of a mouse, and then they would throw the mouse into the desert. But the pagans, the the verses that accompanied their ritual, they believed that they were purging the demons from their temple. Do we believe in demons? No. What in in the minds of Israelite monotheism? What is the only thing that genera? Is there an independent evil force in the world? No. no. So what generates evil in the world? People. People. Correct. Okay? That's a really important distinction. Again, if you look at the Yom Kippur, our Yom Kippur, and you look at a neighboring village in Mesopotamia, we have very similar rituals, but what is so completely different is the, where the belief that evil begins. Evil begins with human beings in Tanakh, not anywhere else. Okay, and so the Kohen brings it in and he sprinkles the blood all over the Beit HaMikdash, and what is he essentially doing? Go to Pasuk Yudalef. The Aharon et par He's gonna bring it first, he's gonna bring it all over uh, for his family and go inside. He's going to sprinkle the blood all over the corners and the Karnatasbeach and inside and the aron until pasuk Tedzain, the chiper Al Hakodesh, Mitum Ot Yisrael, Umi Pish Ahem. Right? We read this word every Yom Kippur, we hear the words in Shul, but we forget that we are literally purifying the temple from the effects of sin. Okay? I actually read, and I don't remember where I read this, so I feel terrible that I can't quote where I read this, but I thought it was a great, um, it was actually a great, I thought, example. Um, the picture of Dorian Gray. Right? So what happens? So he never, he never actually ages. Right? You look at the person and he never ages and it seems like he's not at excuse me, He never, never is never sort of affected by all those horrible things he's doing. But what's really changing? The portrait. Okay? If you look at Israel and there's sin, sin, sin so you look at it and you say but there's no punishment. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. And what the Tanakh is saying is no, a lot is changing. Right? We may not be able to see it. It may not be tangible but a lot is changing and if we don't have Yom Kippur to purify the temple then exile is what follows. Yeah.
3: You know, I was thinking in terms of what you're describing that um, if people remember from the states, you know, the 4-H groups that were agricultural and that kids would bring up a cow or a large animal which eventually would be sent to the slaughterhouse. You know, they get a big prize. But the thing, I think one of the reasons why we're bringing domesticated animals is that the cost involved in raising these animals. We're mm. invested in these animals. We're not necessarily- Oh, that's interesting. We're not necessarily um, uh, uh, invested that they're gonna be offered for a part but it's part of our wealth, and it's part of our standing. And I think if we get back to your quote at the beginning, that what happened when we were more uh, urban dwellers and we were not raising animals is that we paid for them.
0: Uh, okay, so excellent, hold that, okay. because I think we're gonna talk about that in the next class. Urbanization <coughs> changed a lot, and we see it reflected in the words of the Nivian. Excellent, hold that, hold that thought, okay? Excellent, but you're 100% right. Urbanization changes so much, and it's certainly going to change how we experience korbanot, but I think what you're saying, listen, we could spend a whole class looking at how the metaphor, right, the mashal of Hashemro ro'ilo afzar, even as we're sending them off to be slaughtered and we know that it's something that's part of the larger we still feel right there is so much to be done with the metaphor of hashem as our shepherd if we actually really engage in what it means to be a shepherd and preparing you know animals for either slaughter or use or whatever it is it's such a rich metaphor that we're just that again it's lost on us because we're so detached from the you know realities of the world in which the torah was written um but i think you're 100% correct So, Yom Kippur is when we purify the Kodesh Kodesh Kodeshim, because that is when the sins of the entire nation are purified, or the temple is purified from all of that. So, if we go back now, okay, there are two elements, okay? There's ritual purity. This is really annoying. It also helps that it's like 500 degrees in here. I don't think it works well for markers. Okay. Ah, much better. (laughs) <laughs> ritual purity is what? Ritual purity is that awareness of God. We imitate God, and we understand right, those ways to the degree that we can in which he interacts with us. It's an awareness of God, and it's an imitating of God. Okay, that's the imitating God. What is moral purity? Moral purity is... Imitating God's ways, right? Immoral purity is kedoshim tihiyu ki kadosh ani Hashem Okay, and so again, superficially they look like two different categories, but what the entire experience of the Mikdash is saying is that the two are contingent on each other. They are you cannot dis, you cannot dis, you can distinguish between the two, but they're an inextricably linked pair of purities. We are ritually pure so that we can encounter the divine, so that we can understand what it is to interact with the divine, but in order to maintain Hashem's presence, we need to create a community where we are behaving in a godlike manner, and the only way to do that is to follow the rules that Hashem outlined in the Torah where he says, here's how you create a society that is most... Uh, righteous and most moral and most ethical and all the other things that Hashem expects us to do. So that is essentially, um, again, the way that I understand the whole Sefer Vayikra and how the sacrifices play in and why Yom Kippur, even though it should be with the festivals, is at the core of it all. Because the only way to really maintain Hashem's presence is that. I'll also say one other thing that I think this also helps us understand is the idea, right, when we say, Kol Yisrael we think it just means I'm responsible to help other people. What we forget is that the Torah conceives of the community as sort of equally codependent. The individuals in a community, if everyone around me is sinning, Or if I'm sinning, I'm messing it up for my neighbor, right? So I think in today's world, we think in very independent, we think of ourselves and our private relationship with Hashem and how my own spiritual welfare and what that looks like. And what I think the Tanakh or the Torah is consistently repeating over and over is that there's no such thing as just your relationship with God. It's what is your relationship with God within the broader community? And what does the community look like? And how are you impacting the community to ensure that Hashem, that really you are building right? So that is how I understand, or Jonathan Clowens has enabled me to understand these ideas. Uh, yeah, questions. I'll start is, and I'll just is, work my way this, up. Is this, is this
2: combination
0: anywhere else or is it just in Judaism? Mm-hmm. Um, listen, uh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Listen, there were certainly, I will say this, I can't answer your question perfectly because I don't know enough about the other sacrificial systems. I will say I um, mm, I will say we are not the first to say that God cares about ethics, right? Or I will say we're not the first people to put ethics at, at the forefront of what a society looks like. The Egyptians talked about being kind to the widow and the orphan, right? We're not the first to originate these ideas. I think the major difference is that, goes back to what we talked about with the notion of evil. We don't believe in, a, in, in sort of external evil forces that threaten us. I think the the revolution of monotheistic thought is that we are the ones that destroy society, not external forces of evil. Um, I think that's the unique... We're never purging demons from our myths. We're purging sin from our myths. That's a big, big difference. Yeah. I'm I I mean,
2: talking here about <coughs> Yom Kippur as the days of, of Gopalap purging of the
0: whole of the community.
1: <coughs> <coughs> but what if the community had sinned like six months before Yom Kippur?
0: So that's it. It seems that there's one day a year. Again, it's hard to understand the exact. It seems there's one day a year Hashem allows us. We know it's not that, you know, the next day you turn around and God punishes. We know that there's such a thing as a... But I would say that Yom Kippur is that one day a year when we are able to purge the collective community sin. But there also comes a point where if the land is just absorbing, meaning there comes a tipping point. We'll say it like that. I'm coming one second. Yeah. So it's
2: been a year since I've Jonathan Sachs' introduction to Sarah which is amazing. Okay, I
0: need to. Final yeah.
2: Conversation, terrific. Okay. So he makes he makes two points, which I actually remember. <laughs> <laughs> Number one is that the institution of Korbano is uh, is Hashem's gift to us that we are allowed to give a gift back to him. Hmm. this whole time we've been dependent on him, and now we've become a nation that is capable of giving a gift. Second, thing, second thing he says though is that the whole situation, the whole uh, institution of the deduction for the note is to set boundaries, <coughs> and to set very yes. distant boundaries, and anybody who violates <coughs> those boundaries is bi- violating That's not Davinabihu.
0: That, that is the disclaimer before you start. Watch what happens if right. you think this is about you and not about what God is. But it's
2: not just Davinabihu, it's everybody else. 100%.
0: Correct, and every, every, after every paragraph it says, Ka'sher tziva Hashem et Moshe. Right, Moshe does not do a thing that God did not command him, and the same thing goes for the Kohan in all of the, of the Avodah, 100%, 100%. Yeah? Our
1: prayers on Yom Kippur, I'm sure everyone noticed, are all in the floor. Yes. And we
0: can't pick and choose. Correct, because correct. Because we're one. Correct, Hashem knew, I think the liturgy of Yom Kippur picks up on the communal aspect that maybe in modern times we've kind of lost to a degree that we should, you know, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think it also just illustrates the
1: relationship, yeah. and not separate. Hundred percent.
0: A hundred percent. And 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 the fact, right? Correct. And they're mutually exclusive. Meaning, they're, excuse me, they're they're not mutually exclusive. That there's yeah. no way to distinguish between the two is huge. That also, going back to your question, that is one of the. I would say more in the ancient world, you could be punished for misbehaving, but it wasn't necessarily tied to your covenant with God. Meaning, in Egypt, you might not experience, you know, the afterworld if you're not a moral person during in your lifetime. But it's not it's not as explicitly articulated as God expects you to do. Ex- it, it's the, our covenant with God, like you're saying, is inextricably linked to the Venon adam l'chaveiro. That's, that's, again, it's not unique in the sense that we're the only ones that articulate it, but certainly in the emphasis of it, and it's sort of all-encompassing. I think it's, it's. I don't want to say unique, but I think we, we have our, uh, yeah.
3: So if prayer today is... No, I
0: think to a huge degree it's this again, I can't say exactly and I would have to sit and think before I just you know, answer off the cuff, but the whole idea, right? The first thing we do if you think about it, right, the first thing we do is acknowledge who God is. We praise God. You can't step into talking about to God and asking him for things until you first spend all that preliminary right time thinking about God, reflecting on God, what his role is in this world, praising God. All of that is the first coming to understand God and what follows after is everything else. But how do
3: you but it doesn't really
0: Um. Um, interesting maybe not in as tangible a way Um, listen if you think about the Inuyim on Yom Kippur it certainly is right we're not eating we're not right there's all of those things that we're not doing on Yom Kippur is very similar right we are trying to get into a godlike state right it's the Inuyim I would say are the most similar um, but I think all of, of right, sort of the the, the mitzvot is all part of. That's one of the things that Chazal talk about is if you do X, Y, and Z, Hashem's shirina is there. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the temple, right? So many of the mitzvot are articulated as if you do this act, shirina Shorabi Nehem, right? There's so so much of rabbinic Judaism is about um, bringing God into our presence. But again, it was also a different slant because in the Nikdash, we have that place we're going to, and we are going to visit God's dwelling. And in post-exilic Judaism, we need to bring God into our just little shacks. How do we do that? So it's slightly different emphasis. Um, but again, Chazal were very clear that nothing they, nothing they were saying, halakhically speaking, was new. It was all drawn from the precedents. Um, I'm trying to think of, I'm, trying, I'm blanking on the name of who does the best job of this. Why can't I think of the name? Five seconds after class ends, I'll give you the name of the scholar that did. um, Really the seminal, I think, work on the transition from biblical to to Mm -hmm. to rabbinic Judaism. That's his name. Yeah.
2: Next week, we're
0: not. No, no. Next week, no. Yeah. So
2: you said uh, Kapooram was was actually a purging of sin from God. Jonathan Sachs also makes the point
0: of Kapooram being Kaparoma. So, because f- from the ancient cognates, we're not sure if it means, right, sometimes it means to cover over, right, the way the way that you would take paint and cover <laughs> over a stain on the wall, or if it means to, because meaning in the original, the kap- k- pay you know, are. We're not sure where the word origin, I don't know if this is what he's kap- basing kap- it on. Kap- 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 right, but even kap- from kap- the kap- other kap- ancient kap- 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 cognates, kap- it has two different meanings, and we're not sure which word it's drawn from. Kap- yeah, 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 100%. Um, but again, I don't know that to cover, oh, um, I have to look back, I remember reading years ago how the words, the etymology is not even so different if you're saying to purge or to cover over, but I have to look back and see because, why. Because
2: what is the goal of, you know, then? Is it to cover over
0: our sins or is it to yeah. purge our sins? That's why um, yeah, but again, I'm not sure, right? If you talk about a dirty wall and you cover it with a fresh coat of paint, again, we're using, you know, Tangible ways to talk about what we're really talking it's about.
2: Still there yes, but again, what's
0: actually purging, You know, meaning what are we actually purging? I'm not sure if we're actually doing something so different, or the 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 you know language we're using to talk about the process is different. I have to think about that. Ah, interesting, interesting. Ah, that's interesting. The sagina horror comes from. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. All right. Have a, oh, and have a wonderful week next week. We're on break. So, have a great week. Come back prepared to learn a little bit about why we have to uh, humble ourselves when we talk about Corbanos. <laughs>